the Democrats and the liberals say, you used to go after me pretty good. It never bothered me. It, that's their job. But when my friends, people from my party, my persuasion, when they turned on me, it just crushed me. Former U.S. House of Representatives Majority Leader Dick Armey. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Economist and Texas Republican Dick Armey was first elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1984. By 1995, he had risen to the post of majority leader as the Republican Revolution swept Washington. He served as majority leader until he left Congress after the 2002 elections. The following year, he came out with a little book called Army's Axioms, little tidbits of wisdom that he'd collected over the years. And even though this interview is 18 years old, you may yet find a little bit of useful wisdom in it. So here now from 2003, Dick Army. It's a lot of fun. You know, I just, and the, it's subtitled 40 Hard-Earned Truths from Politics, Faith, and Life. How did you come up with this list? of? Is, is, is this a list of 40 that you've had in mind for a long time? Or did you, when it came time to write a book, say, all right, well, what's important to me? And then come up with a list of 40. Well, actually, I've, I've just sort of used them when the occasion approached. And I uh, started when I was teaching years ago to help the students get something to hang a hat on. And, uh, and I, I got to the point after I was majority leader that people would quote me and uh, other people say, you ought to write these down. Then finally I decided, well, maybe I ought to, but I couldn't remember them. I couldn't just sit down and say, <laughs> uh, so I got in the habit for about three months. Every time I said one, I'd take out a piece of paper and write it down. Or I'd put a note on my on my uh, handheld just to remind me of that axiom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, all of a sudden, started collecting them, I had over 40 of them. <laughs> now, do, do Texans just have a, a, a greater natural knack for coming up with these? I mean, I can't imagine somebody from, bless their hearts, Vermont coming up with, you know, with, with a list of 40 axioms. Well, these sort of colloquial regional things, I think there's a lot of color in just about every region of the country. And uh, they say, I don't think that it's fair, but I, they say that Texans are a lot of full of it. Uh, <laughs> Maybe that's uh, something to that. I don't know. Well, if if I may respectfully, well, I think what you're full of is a lot of wisdom in here. I mean, there's I there's, so. there's some real truth and and guns. And this is not. I have to confess, when I first got this book, I worried. Oh my gosh, this is going to be such a partisan book. But there's uh, no partisanship in this uh, book. No, I actually I I had uh, an agenda and two hidden agendas. <laughs> my agenda was to take uh, serious subjects and treat them with some kind of good humor. When I did my textbook on advanced microeconomic theory, a reviewer said that I had humor with relevance. And I thought, that'd be a fun thing if I could do that. <laughs> and uh, so, so the, 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 to the reader, I'd say, hey, these are lessons I've learned in the context within I learned them in my life. Maybe you can find something there for you. That was my agenda. My, my two hidden agendas were, one, to just make a gentle persuasion for the Lord without being preachy or pious. Uh, and then two, to maybe demonstrate to people that retire from high office, you can write a book and it can be a good selling book without trashing your old former colleagues. That you, So I was very purposeful in not being unkind to people in this book. My objective was nobody should lay the book down and say, gee, I'm sorry what Army wrote about me. And I, I hope I did that. I mean, there's just no need for that stuff. Well, and also, with all due respect to Ann Coulter and Joe Connison and Al Franken, 
So many books that claim to be political books are nothing much more these days than name-calling and vilification and dragging people through the mud and slinging mud at them. Do we, we don't need that anymore. No, I, I don't think so. Now, I do try to, and several of the axioms, to try to at least say what I think are the differences between the mm-hmm. liberal and the conservative philosophies and behavior patterns. Uh, but I try not to take... Now, I did, for example, I did kind of rag on Charlie uh, Charlie Wrangle a little bit, but Charlie Wrangle's a good sport. He gives it and he takes it. And, and I knew when I wrote these kind of raspy things about Charlie Wrangle that, hey, Charlie, you'll get a chuckle out of that. He'll say, good one, Army, and come back to me later. And that's fair enough. You know? And he'll be sitting here with his book next yeah. year. So, <laughs> But it's not like I would, I, and, I, and I would be willing to bet that Charlie would say, well, Army never said anything unkind about me. He just kind of ragged on me a little bit. <laughs> well, actually, let me, let me ask you about a couple of, of Army's axioms in here. Let me, start, let me start with number one. Is there a reason that freedom works is number one? Well, I, I, I hold freedom as the most precious gift, uh, I mean, other than our salvation and, of course, deliverance from our sins and forgiveness. But that which differentiates us from dumb animals, the Lord God Almighty gives us freedom. We have the intelligence to understand the wonders of the universe and the freedom to to modify it for our purpose. Freedom works and works in every aspect of our life. It is so precious and uh, it needs to be uh, cherished. I I say it's the duty of governments to protect it, and uh, and it's a privilege of individuals to cherish it. So I guess I would say it is my highest political value. But all others, all the rest of the 39, all stem from that, don't they? Well, yeah, they do. I mean, I hope they all come back. Later on, I say, for example, if you love peace more than freedom, you lose. And uh, I'll apply that to your marriage. I'll apply that to your, your relationships at work, and I'll apply it to politics. Well, there was. I'm just. I marked a couple here that 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 caught my attention. That I thought uh, we should zero. Let me come back to what you said a moment ago about uh, contrasting liberals conservatives. One of your axioms, number uh, twenty-one. If I'm, I need new glasses. Twenty-two. No, it's (laughs) twenty-one. Liberals love feelings too much. Conservatives love facts too much. Oh, oh, what what do you mean by that? Well, so I watch this political discourse, and to a large extent, I think we see. Conservatives and liberals don't talk well to one another because they're, they're speaking as we're in different languages. The liberals are using, by and large, an emotive language. Uh, they talk about great societies and new frontiers and broad sweeping sort of normative circumstances and conditions mm-hmm. that are appealing to our heartstrings. And conservatives talk about, well, my best illustration is the the uh, equal marginal conditions of allocative efficiency within multiple preference functions. You know, my wife put it this way. She said, you know, it's not much fun to be a conservative spouse because the Democrats party with movie stars and you party with CPAs. (laughs) So to a large extent, we don't talk to it. I think conservatives need to be more in touch with feelings, and I think liberals ought to be more in touch with facts, and I think we would then be able to talk better with one another. Liberals are from Mars and conservatives are from Venus? Yeah, there's something. Something like that, I have one has to be very careful in this politically correct word. To <laughs> make sure you don't say anything too clearly. <laughs> well, and that's one of your other axioms. I, I might not be able to find it right off the top of my head, but the the, the liberals are afraid that. Uh, uh, help me out with this. Okay, the conservative is afraid the public won't understand, and the liberals afraid the public will understand. Yes. <laughs> I, well, I, and you know, one of the things is sometimes it seems harsh, but as I wrote. Like I talk, I say nothing that I don't believe to be true. 
And conservatives are just haunted, well-documented, everybody acknowledges. Conservatives are always haunted by the fear that the public won't understand. Well, the uh, liberals are, frankly, equally afraid the public will understand. And that's why the liberals get their story out early and get it out, you know, in unison. And Because they cannot afford the public to understand. Uh, they'll slam the door on people that don't share their politically correct point of view. And, of course, the most quick graphic example are black conservatives in America. They're shunned, they're ridiculed, and they're demonized because they're not thinking right. So, And they don't want the public to understand from a Thomas Sowell about his research on the American black, black American experience. In fact, one of the stories I tell in the book, and I really heard this, was... Thomas Sowell has nothing in his life's experience that qualifies him to speak for the black experience in America. And I'm sitting there saying, what? And the guy saying it is whiter, more light-complected than I am. So, but they just, so it's just a matter of shutting down people that are going to speak differently. Well, I gather your book is not just for politicians, though. I hope it's not. Yeah, obviously, uh, you've got two things. A lot of people are intrigued by these kind of political mm-hmm. war stories. And... Uh, if I'm illustrating the point out of my own life's experience, 20 years of it was in public office. Mm-hmm. But I, it is my invitation in the preface and my hope for the reader that uh, maybe you'll find something here that applies to you in your life. Or maybe mm-hmm. it'll be helpful to you. The uh, the points I make about insecurity, 90% of all the mean and harmful things I ever did in my life, I did while I was feeling insecure. Mm-hmm. Well, if you can find a way to eliminate the insecurity, you might eliminate the meanness, and you'll be a better person for it. Mm-hmm. Then I tell how I, I, I got rid of the insecurity from my life uh, by uh, accepting Jesus for my Savior. It worked for me. It might not work for somebody else, but it did make me, uh, as George Bush 41 would have said, a kinder, gentler person. <laughs> But then again, your book is not a, a how-to, a, a recipe, you know, say just follow steps one, two, three, and four, and by golly, you'll be a well-adjusted person. No, no. I, it's basically different thoughts, different ideas. Maybe you'll reflect on it. Maybe you'll find meaning in your life. I I pretty much promise that you'll laugh out loud in every chapter. My wife did, and she cried out loud in three chapters. I don't expect the readers other than my wife to cry out loud in this book. <laughs> But uh, you're, there you're, are a couple of places where I touched my wife's heart a little bit. You, you, I guess, by your own admission, are a bit of a crier yourself. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> Army's action. If you don't weep when you must, you'll weep forever. And Susan and I worked on that with me for a long, long time. And uh, it was just a matter of the way I was raised. We were forbidden to cry. You just can't cry. Mm-hmm. It's not allowed. Well, all of a sudden, I'd be standing, I, we were standing in... Uh, in Arlington Cemetery, and they played taps, and I'm weeping like a baby. You ask yourself, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. So we tried to work on that, and and there may be something that stops you from crying when it is necessary and appropriate. But don't think that that means the crying will never happen. It'll mm-hmm. show up someplace else. Mm-hmm. Hey, when it happened to me a few years ago, I just figured it's because I was getting in middle life. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. I figured my hormones are changing, you yeah. know, things like that. And yeah. uh, these days, uh, even a Cubs loss in the seventh, seventh game of the playoff series uh, sent me over the edge. Oh, but that's yeah. <laughs> that'll be a whole other book for a whole other time. Right. Let me ask you, I was confused by just the heading. I mean, because you know, I, I, I don't want to give away what the mm-hmm. chapter is. I'll let you do that. Your worst enemies are your best friends. Yeah, well, again, in politics, of course, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of combativeness, there's a lot of confrontation. The Democrats and the liberals, they used to go after me pretty good. It never bothered me. It, I, I always kind of stumped members of the press that I wouldn't get upset by it. My point was that's their job. Their job is to go after me. Uh, and they do it well. 
with with conviction, I might say. Mm-hmm. And that never bothered me. But when my friends, people from my party, my persuasion, my point of view, people I'd labored in the vineyards with and gone to the wars with, when they turned on me, it just crushed me. It disoriented me. It confused me, hurt me. And, uh, and I realized my enemies can't hurt me, but my friends can just kill me. Because I care, I guess. And then you understand, what do I expect from my enemies? Do I expect them to come hugging and kissing on me? No. That doesn't mean I have to like the Florida Marlins, but that's... No, 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 that's right. I mean, <laughs> one of the things I do think we ought to do is choose our enemies more carefully. Too, too many times we just sort of adopt our enemies because there's somebody else's that we like. Right? We ought to make some judicious choice in the matter. But that's politics, isn't yeah, right. it? Yeah, well, politics is, to a large extent, just falling in line. And and choosing your friends and enemies yeah. wisely. Yeah, yeah, it is. That's right. And your fights wisely. <laughs> that's, right. Yeah, that's that's true too. I I think you've got to. Oh, oh, wait, but here we go. As an old fogey in training, <laughs> this one caught my eye. Old fogies don't tolerate young fogies. Yeah, I was careful in this to define what I meant by a fogey, and that's somebody that's insecure in their own skin. <laughs> I actually uh, learned this one way back when I was a professor at the university. The old tenured professors would not put up with the young. But to a large extent, that which we see as intolerance from the old fogies derives out of the insensitivity that the young people do have to their mores. Look, look, this has been my vineyard. I've worked here for 20 years. I've been comfortable here. I've been home here. Now i got this young Turk coming in here and telling me we've got to change things. It's going to make the old fella insecure. It's going to threaten him. It's going to make him feel unappreciated. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to be very tolerant of it, and he'll lash back. So I guess I'm saying is, hey, if you're the bright new guy with the great new ideas, well, be gentle. Just bring them along and help the other people appreciate, hey, I love what you've done all your life. You've been good in, in your time, and i got some things. Maybe we can add and build a little on what you did. And there might be a possibility the young fogey could learn a thing or two That's from the right. old fogey. You surely can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can. Uh, if you just have a little bit of time but to a large extent when we feel set upon it is oftentimes a consequence of our own action i think Mm -hmm. i make a point in here you feel like the world doesn't understand you when in fact the problem is you don't understand yourself (laughs) do you feel freer to say these things now than you would have felt when you were still in the house no, i just feel freer to write them and put it out in a book (laughs) and expect to get royalties from it <laughs> i've always had a reputation for being pretty direct and outspoken i don't i don't really know any other way to be i tried i hope i've been kind over the years i've, I've tried not to be unkind but uh i uh, know i've been fairly willing to say most of these things uh uh in fact when i retired from congress and they gave a dinner to i guess celebrate the fact i was leaving <laughs> Uh, they had a, quite a few axioms that were sort of run on a screen. So I've said these things pretty directly for quite some time. I just would say to people, look, yeah, I promise you a laugh in every chapter. I hope you'll find a lesson, something worthwhile. I'll certainly give you something to think about, and I'll guarantee you, you'll read at least two chapters that'll make you uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, that is true, but uncomfortable yeah. in a good way. I hope so, in a constructive in a way that's way. helpful. That's yeah. right. Dick Army is 80 now and still works as a consultant and a lobbyist. And you can find easy Amazon links to Dick Army's book at our website, heardeverything.com. Would you do me a favor? If you liked today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening.
Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my 1993 interview with a woman who had just written her second novel. And it was a novel based on, kind of based, on things in her real life. Her name was Ivana Trump. I have a great confidence, and, and I know that I'm young, and I'm healthy, and I'm not poor. I have three beautiful children, and I have a great education. And I'm not lazy. I like to work. I always will be able to support myself no matter what. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.